back to the fourth episode of Radio Nuclear, the podcast all about the science behind our natural and medical world. We focus on the biology, chemistry, physics and engineering, both physical and digital, that shape the world in which we live. This episode is the first in a mini-series on the topic of cancer, a subject close to my personal and academic life. In this episode, I'm going to introduce what cancer is, from the origin of the word to how the disease can come to be, and a couple of routes we can take to treat the disease. We'll then delve into the Shoulders of Giants section where I'll be highlighting another incredibly influential black scientist who helped change the way cancer is researched and treated. This episode sets up our next two episodes in which I'm joined by a couple of guests from the Department of Imaging, Chemistry and Biology at King's College London, Dr. Samantha Terry and one of her PhD students and one of my colleagues in the Smart Medical Imaging CDT at King's and Imperial Colleges London, Inesh Costa. Those conversations will make up the next two episodes in which I have a fascinating conversation with Dr. Terry, where we cover, amongst other things, her research interests, what it's like to be a young female lab supervisor, rap music, and the TV show The Big Bang Theory. The following episode will include my conversation with Inesh, where we talk about the life of a PhD student, her PhD project, and our views on the importance of science. So, with a lot to cover, we'd better get cracking. Here's the fourth episode of Radionuclear. Let's talk about the C word. Cancer is perhaps the most talked about and one of the most feared diseases in the world. The dreaded C word is something that's feared by all, me included. In our lifetimes, it's estimated that one in two of us will be given a diagnosis of this disease. Cancer is prevalent not only in its incidence within our population as an illness, but also in the frequency in which it appears in the media we consume. By that, I mean that news outlets are quick to publicise a new cure to cancer or a foodstuff that's been found to increase cancer risk. We have cancer charities advertising on TV more regularly and Facebook friends embarking on a physical feat in the name of cancer research with justified pleas for a donation. There are all of these ways in which cancer has become part of our everyday conversation. And this is a great thing. The fear and stigma around the C word is decreasing. It's something that people talk about more than ever. People check their and their partner's bodies for lumps and bumps and share their stories online or at coffee morning set up to help those uh, most in need. And this is in part due to the brilliant work and positive work done by cancer charities, organisations and researchers around the world. But despite people talking about cancer and being aware of its existence, it's something that very few people actually understand. And cancer isn't fully understood. We don't know everything there is to know about it. And if we were in that position, we'd be able to treat everyone with 100% effectiveness. But understanding even the most basic concepts, I think, are crucial for us all to know. It is only by talking and understanding more about the disease that we can further reduce the fear or unknowingness of a cancer diagnosis. I know this because I did it myself. At the start of my academic career, as a fresh-faced first-year student at university, my nan, Maggie, were diagnosed with stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma. Of course, this took our family aback. It was a shock and it was a horrible thing to deal with. And I'm sure many of you can attest to that. I was at a stage in my life where I had two academic interests, neuroscience, or more specifically Alzheimer's disease, and cancer. And it was my nan's diagnosis that inspired my research preference, and thus my career to date. After her diagnosis, I was determined to know more about cancer because of this personal connection. I wanted to understand as many of the ins and outs of cancer as I could, to understand how different therapies work, all in the hopes of seeing the positives and in my nan's case, the light at the end of the tunnel. My nan was a huge inspiration in my life, 
who was the one who encouraged me to pursue science and who I can credit for my inquisitive nature. In her working days, she was a nurse, so had some medical understanding, but as with most people, had no idea what drugs she was being put on, why those drugs uh, specifically, and the effects that these have on cancer, but also on her body. I looked into these things and communicated them to her, and yet to this day, I have no idea whether they are actually helpful to her, but I think she knew that it was helpful to me. Now, I realised that this method of, I guess you could call it grief, may not be usual, but it was, at least to me, incredibly effective. I also realised that I was in a very fortunate position where I could learn more about cancer from excellent scientists who'd spent their career researching and studying the disease. And as I've said, I think in every episode to date, this podcast is an effort to try and help you, the listener, know as much as you want to know about anything you can think of. You can think of me as your own scientific Google search, but rather than just a Wikipedia entry, what you'll get back is a curated answer from as many relevant sources as I can find, conveyed in understandable terms, not the jargon and acronyms that we scientists usually love to use. So, with all that said, I hope you'll stay with me for a quick rundown on the origin of cancer. Cancer is not a new disease. Granted, it's more prevalent now, as I'll explain shortly, but it's been around presumably as long as multicellular organisms have roamed the earth. Its discovery, however, was made by Hippocrates, the Greek physician termed the father of medicine. Hippocrates lived between the time of 460 to 370 BC and used the term carcinos and carcinoma to describe non-ulcer and ulcer-forming tumours respectively. These words derive from the same word as that for crab, karkinos. Apologies again for the butchering of another language. But it was thought that Hippocrates used these terms because of the spindly projections from the tumour, which resemble the legs of a crab. In the Roman era, Celsus, who lived sometime between 130 and 200 AD, was responsible for translating these terms to the Latin for crab, cancer. And it is for this reason that the disease and the astrological star sign share the same name. Another important term in cancer medicine is oncology, which is the study of tumours and their treatment. Galen, another Greek physician who lived slightly later than Hippocrates, is credited with this term's origin, as he described the tumour as a swelling, or onkos, in Greek. And since these early studies over two millennia ago, the understanding of cancer has has come a long way, most notably in the last century, as science technology has granted new techniques and methods to investigate disease, not just cancer. But perhaps one of the most notable advances to be aware of is the classification of cancer and the understanding of the causes of cancer. Cancer is a disease defined by rapid proliferation of abnormal cells. In layman's terms, this means that cells in your body divide uncontrollably. You see, cells in our body have a lifespan, just like you and me, and their lives can be broken down into stages. But these stages are not linear. They can cycle back through life. The progression through the cell cycle is tightly regulated, however, and cancers come to be when the progression through these different stages, known as checkpoints, become disrupted. This means that cells can grow and grow until they form a tumour, a collection of these abnormal cells. The exact causes of how these cells get into this state is still being researched. However, we do know lots of pieces in this puzzle. Many of the chemotherapy drugs prescribed target these cell cycle checkpoints and cause cancer cells to stop in their tracks, preventing their rapid growth. 
When this happens, these cells begin to die by their own accord or can be killed off by cells within your immune system. It's the same reason why chemotherapy can cause hair loss. Cells producing hair follicles are also rapidly proliferating or growing and replacing each other. So an unfortunate side effect of stopping cancer cells progressing through the cell cycle is stopping your hair producing cells from doing the same thing. And when these cells die, your hair falls out. However, most of the time, these cells reignite after chemotherapy and people can get their hair back. And although it's a little earlier in proceedings than normal, this seems like an appropriate point to talk about our giant of the week, Dr. Jane C. Wright, a pioneering cancer researcher and surgeon who contributed greatly to the advancement of chemotherapy. Dr. Wright was born in New York City in 1919 to Corinne White, Nay Cook, who was a teacher, and Louis Tompkins Wright, who was one of the first African-American graduates of the Harvard Medical School and the first African-American doctor appointed to a staff position at New York City's Municipal Hospital. In 1929, he also became the first African-American police surgeon and set up Cancer Research Centre at Harlem Hospital. Not to be beaten by her father and grandfather's accomplishments, who was also a physician, Dr. Jane C. Wright graduated with an honours degree in medicine from New York Medical College in 1945. Interestingly, her younger sister Barbara also became a physician, keeping the family tradition going. After graduating, Jane practised medicine at a number of hospitals in the state of New York including Bellevue and Harlem, where her dad practiced. Whilst at Harlem, Jane married another very successful man, David Jones Jr., a Harvard Law School graduate. In the same period, Dr. Wright gave birth to her first child and after six months of maternity leave, returned to the hospital to finish her training as chief resident. The following year, in 1949, Dr. Wright was appointed to be a staff physician for the New York City Public Schools, whilst continuing a visiting role at Harlem Hospital. This job was only brief, however, as after six months, Dr. Wright joined the Cancer Research Foundation at Harlem Hospital, the foundation that her father had set up and was now director of. The two Wrights, father and daughter, then began to work together, continuing Dr. Louis Wright's uh, work into anti-cancer chemicals, what we would now call chemotherapy drugs. The two conducted clinical trials on drugs for leukemia and lymphoma, cancers of the blood and lymphatic system. Their roles in this partnership were that Dr. Louis developed the drugs and Dr. Jane performed the clinical trials, working closely with patients. The drugs that were developed by these two were folic acid antagonists, which stopped the production of certain amino acids, the building blocks for proteins in our bodies. This style of therapeutic is potent but effective. So effective, in fact, that one of the drugs that Dr. Wright helped discover and administer, methotrexate, is still being used in clinical practice today. Dr. Jane Wright's impact on cancer research didn't stop there. She was one of the first to devise therapeutic plans for cancer patients, realising the benefits of combining drugs. And Dr. Wright was also one of the first to take cells from patients' tumours and culture these cells for lab-based tests. This research was critical in shaping the way in which cell culture for scientific research is carried out today. The partnership with her father only lasted a few years, as in 1952 Dr. Louis Wright passed away. Because of her acumen, his daughter and our giant of the week, Dr. Jane Wright, was appointed as head of the Cancer Research Foundation at the age of just 33. A few years later, in 1955, Dr. Wright was appointed as an Associate Professor of Surgical Research and Director of Cancer Chemotherapy Research at New York University and its Associated Medical Center. The accolades kept coming for Dr. Wright, as in 1964 she was appointed to the President's Commission on Heart Disease, Cancer and Stroke by President Lyndon B. Johnson, and in 1967, she was named head of the cancer chemotherapy department and associate dean at New York Medical College, the university she once trained at. 
Throughout all of these promotions, Dr. Wright continued her incredibly valuable research, developing new drugs with her team of scientists, new regimes for cancer patients, and new methods of delivering drugs to tumours. Wright developed sequential dosing to build up drug doses rather than delivering the drugs all at once, which caused significant side effects. She identified chemotherapies that were effective in patients with skin cancer, with some living for as long as 10 years post-diagnosis, something that was incredibly rare at the time. And she developed a catheter system to directly deliver chemotherapies to tumours located deep within the liver and spleen. In total, Dr. Wright published over 100 papers on cancer chemotherapeutics and was rightly appointed to the board of editors for the Journal of the National Medical Association in America. Towards the end of her career, Dr. Wright worked in Ghana and Kenya treating patients with cancer and later served as vice president for the African Research and Medical Foundation between the years of 1973 and 1984. Prior to her retirement in 1985, Wright also received an honorary doctorate from the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania. Her career was quite incredible, particularly at a time when very few female African-American physicians were practicing. Dr. Wright had worked her way up to be one of the most influential physicians in the country, and therefore the highest ranked African-American woman at a nationally recognized institution. Aside from her research, Dr. Wright was very much into the arts, painting with watercolors frequently and was an avid swimmer. It's clear that Dr. Wright was a highly motivated and successful individual, committed to making the world a better place. She passed away at the age of 93 in February 2013, and has left behind quite the legacy. I think we all owe a lot to Dr. Wright and her family for their contributions to medical research, medical treatment, and setting a fine example of how to make a significant and positive impact on the world. today's topic. The other major thing to know about cancer is that it's a genetic disease. What this means is that unlike infectious agents like bacteria or viruses that can cause changes to how our bodies function, cancer originates in our own DNA, the genetic code found in nearly every cell in our body. The exception, incidentally, is being hardened or dead skin cells and mature red blood cells. Now cancer arises when there are mutations to our DNA. Mutations occur when we are exposed to environmental agents such as radiation, as we've mentioned before, or to something like oxidative stress, which is a product of our cell's metabolism, the process of making energy and resources. Each one of our cells is thought to suffer up to a million DNA alterations per day, according to work done by Lodish and colleagues in 2005. Now, considering that our body is made up of about 30 trillion cells, it is perhaps confusing as to why we don't all have cancer all of the time. Well, the answer to that lies in the fact that a lot of our DNA is non-coding. See, our DNA can be broken into genes, Sections of DNA that can be read uh, by our cell machinery and eventually turned into proteins, which are essential for life. Each gene is comprised of coding and non-coding sections. Coding sections are known as exons, and non-coding sections are known as introns. You could think of your DNA maybe as a series of books, with each book representing a chromosome, and with each, within each book you have different chapters, and these are your genes. But within each chapter, only a fraction of the information is actually needed for you to get the gist of the story. And these are your exons. The rest of the words are introns, and they just help the story go along. In fact, only 1% of your DNA is actually coding for proteins. You may therefore wonder what the point of introns are. 
but that other 99% of our DNA is there just to provide the additional detail that helps make our exons make sense. And forgive me while I quick, go on a quick tangent, the concept of our DNA as a series of books is not a new one. At the University of Leicester, where I did my undergraduate degree, the genetics department had printed out the entire human DNA sequence. Each of the three billion base pairs was represented by a letter, and when printed in size 4 font, with 43,000 characters per page, the entire genome covered 130 volumes. The point of all of this is to demonstrate that we have a lot of DNA, with very little of it actually leading to proteins. Interestingly, humans only have about 30,000 genes, but some genes can encode multiple proteins, making it more efficient than other organisms. Of these 30,000 genes, around 50 are thought to be cancer-causing. These genes are known as proto-oncogenes. If a mutation occurs in one of these proto-oncogenes, it causes it to become an oncogene, which is the form of the gene that can cause cancer. The occurrence of a mutation in these genes is relatively low, and even when there is one, our cells have repair mechanisms which either correct our DNA to turn it back into a healthy sequence again, or the cell that is becoming cancerous gets killed off by our immune system. However, as we get older, our defence mechanisms aren't as good. They, like us, get beaten up by life's events. They can become damaged by env environmental factors like radiation or cancer-causing agents, uh, carcinogens, such as those found in cigarette smoke. The factors that we encounter in our lives cause stress on our cells. The unhealthier or pressured our lives are, the more stress can be put on our cells, which is why the likelihood of lung cancer is higher in smokers than non-smokers, for example. The accumulation of damage to our cells is ultimately what brings on the increased risk of cancer. And as the average age is increasing, we're seeing cancer become more prevalent in society. And as I said at the top of this episode, one in two of us are expected to get the disease at some point in our lives. However, cancer is not quite as scary as it once was, with the chance of surviving more than 10 years post-diagnosis about 50%, double that of what it was 40 years ago. The research that scientists is therefore doing and the donations that you're making to cancer charities and that funds cancer research are obviously paying off, and we are getting there. We now have a quick question from Smithika. Hi, I'm Smithika, and I would like to know how big a problem is cancer inherited from parents, and what can be done to minimise the damage from it? Cancer isn't just a product of environmental factors and chance mutations. There is, of course, the inheritable cancer risk, as Smithika says. Inherited cancer is a real concern. However, it isn't as big as many people think, with only 5-10% to of all cancers coming from inherited mutations. It is therefore far more common to get a spontaneous case of cancer, which arise naturally for the reasons I mentioned a little earlier. It is therefore important to be aware of familial cancer, but far more attention should be paid to our own health and well-being, which means that we should check ourselves and partners regularly and visit a doctor whenever we have cause for concern. Unfortunately, there's not much we can do about inherited cancer risk, as we can't change our genetic makeup. However, as I've said before, the most important thing we can do is be aware. If multiple people in your family have died from cancer, it's well worth consulting an expert to see if you can genetic be genetically screened to understand your risk. There aren't that many genes that we need to be tested for, however, which is great as it means these tests can be formed pretty routinely and reliably. The most famous gene inherited mutation is of the BRCA genes, that's BRCA. The BRCA genes 1 and 2 are tumour suppressor genes. These are naturally occurring proteins that enable protection mechanisms against cancer progression. However, mutations in these genes are associated with increased risk of breast and ovarian cancer. 
Mutations of the BRCA genes can be inherited, and if you have one of these gene mutations, you have an increased risk of developing breast or ovarian cancer. However, it's not a guarantee. This gene, BRCA, BRCA, stands for breast cancer gene. It became famous following Angelina Jolie's double mastectomy, as she found out she was a carrier of a BRCA mutation, so decided to take the rather extreme route of surgically removing her breast tissue. Having this mutation isn't a death note, and with careful monitoring and management, any cancer that arises can be dealt with effectively. The actions of Angelina Jolie did, however, have a positive influence on society, with many now getting tested for inheritable cancer mutations. This wave of testing was coined the Angelina Jolie effect, and has been important in increasing the understanding of genetic risk factors for cancer. The BRCA gene that I just mentioned is a tumour suppressor gene, of which there are around 10 to 15 confirmed, depending on your source. Mutations in these genes prevent your cells from responding to stresses that cause cancer or can cause cancer, unlike oncogenes, which actively cause cancer, and this is a key difference to understand. If you cast your mind back to a few episodes ago, I used an analogy of using sport, and once again, I'm going to rely on that. And again, as much as it pains me as a rugby player, I'll use football or soccer again, um, mainly because it's a pretty simple sport that most people can uh, relate to in some way. And you can think of the goal as the end result of cancer. And one side is defending, and these are our tumour suppressors, whose job it is to prevent the other team, the proto-oncogenes, from scoring. The tumour suppressors are always alert, preventing any threat to development of cancer. The proto-oncogene team lies relatively dormant with the odd spark of brilliance, a mutation, causing the proto-oncogene to become an oncogene, its most powerful or effective form. However, one threat is not enough to simply cause cancer, as the tumour suppressors can deal with its attempts easily. However, if another mutation occurs and another proto-oncogene becomes an oncogene, the chance of scoring increases, and the tumour suppressors now have more to worry about. As we age, and as, or as the match goes on, we accumulate more mutations, and the proto-oncogene team becomes fully energised to a team of oncogenes, and suddenly it's not so easy for the tumour suppressor genes to keep the cancer at bay. Equally, if there's a mutation to our tumour suppressor genes, let's say our goalkeeper has their legs tied together, it suddenly becomes far easier to score a goal. And we could call this goalkeeper P53, after the protein known as the gatekeeper to the, gen to the genome. P53 is an incredibly important protein, the most studied protein of all in scientific research. Around 50% of all cancers have what is called a loss of function mutation in P53. That is a mutation that means that the protein has stopped working properly. It therefore seems appropriate as our final hurdle to cancer progression in this analogy. And I could go on about P53 for an entire episode, but I won't for now. If you do have any questions about this protein or any others I've mentioned, please do write in. But each cancer has a slightly different football match going on, with different players at different times. And these differences are what causes lung cancer to be different from breast cancer, and even one person's breast cancer to be different from another person's breast cancer. And cancer is therefore a complica complicated disease to try and understand, and it's our job as scientists to do our best Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher impressions to try and analyse each game and understand common themes. Who are the big players for each team? For the oncogenes, what's the best way to neutralise them? And for the tumour suppressors, how can we help them defend better? As cancer can be different from person to person, there is increased chatter in the field of personalised medicine. This is the idea that each therapy or course of treatment is more individual, which will lead to increased rates of survival. It's similar to having your choice of hay fever or pain relief medication. 
some people prefer using paracetamol, and some prefer ibuprofen. Each have other effects, but at the same time have the same ultimate result. However, some people will have better reactions to one drug over another based on their physiology. It is therefore inaccurate to call out scientists for not having found a cure to cancer yet, as there are so many different cancers and so many different variables at play. See, cancer is an umbrella term. Some cancers are a little easier to treat than others. In recent years, a lot of great progress has been made in treating some forms of the disease, and it's hoped that within my generation's lifetime, we'll be in a fantastic position to deal with cancer, whichever one it may be. The current methods we deal with cancer are by preventing cancers from functioning at a protein level, stopping the key players on the pitch from playing, or by attacking the DNA, which is, like I guess, the coach or the game plan, the instruction book which cancers follow to keep them going. As I mentioned earlier, chemotherapy is one of the key methods we use to treat cancer, but another is radiotherapy. In the second episode of this podcast, I went into the basics of how radiation can cause cancer, but also how it can be harnessed to treat the disease. In the next episode of this podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Samantha Terry, a scientist at King's College London, who's doing some great work in furthering our knowledge about the biological effects of radiation, how different types of radiation can be utilised, and how she and her group of scientists are helping to communicate their work to the public so that everyone can know a little more about radiation and radiotherapy. Until then, that's it for this episode. Join me next time for my conversation with Dr. Samantha Terry uh, on more chat about this fascinating topic of cancer. Don't forget to get in touch with any questions you may have and get involved with us on social media. I'll leave you in the traditional way with a quote from our giant of the week, Dr. Jane Wright, who upon retiring said, quote, There's lots of fun in exploring the unknown. There's no greater thrill in having an experiment turn out in such a way that you're able to make a positive contribution, unquote. So with that said, I hope you go out there and have some fun exploring the unknown and leave some positivity along the way. Until next time. Stay safe. Goodbye.